I'm excited to be back in Romans this morning. And I want to tell you that as we go through Romans, we get basically one of two options in, in the human thought process. In our human minds, we can either uncomfortably submit to the Word of God or we can rebel against it. So it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would do the work of, of sanctification in us and cause us to uncomfortably submit to the Word of God. And now, it's been a few weeks since we were in Romans together, so for those who are visiting this morning and for those of us with spotty memories, the chapters up until now have emphasized that God has brought righteousness to individuals from all people groups and ethnicities. And in the context of the Roman church, that meant the people from both Jewish and Gentile groups had come to be made righteous in the exact same manner through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul has eliminated all other possibilities for anything else that might influence whether one is made righteous or not. It is only through faith in Christ. And so, in chapters 1 to 4, Paul has defended the primary thesis that both righteousness and God's saving promises are experienced only through faith and that irrespective of ethnicity. So now chapter 5 signals a transition in the argument, and we're going to read that because I forgot I'm reading this morning, preaching on a passage we haven't read yet. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to read the first five verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 5, as I began saying, is a transition. We've talked a lot about the bad news, the bad news that makes the good news good, why we all so desperately need salvation, and why we come all in the same manner and from the same standing point, because none of us has done anything to earn God's saving grace. None of us is righteous in ourselves. No one is righteous, no, not one. And now chapter 5, there's a transition uh, to the good news. You, you just even, you, you, you hear it in the tone. All of a sudden, it's, since we've been justified by faith, now look at all these great things that we have. If the promises of God and the privilege of right relationship with Him come only through faith, then to be made righteous by faith signals that the future blessings promised to Israel belong to the people of God still. Those who are right with God through faith will experience all of the promises of the Old Testament made to Israel. They will be delivered from God's wrath, and they will experience future glory. The righteousness of faith not only promises a future hope, although it especially includes this, but it also involves present transformation in the lives of believers. And so, we, we see that the moral renewal of believers is a confirmation that the promised inheritance is no illusion. And so, Paul continues 
his discourse on the justification by faith, that is that God declares believers righteous by faith, but now begins shifting to the overarching theme of Romans as a whole, the obedience of faith, or what we might call sanctification by faith. And many highlight the first theme, justification, and yet completely miss this primary theme that justification, that being declared righteous by God, necessarily leads to sanctification, which I define as growing in fervor and frequency in obedience to God. And as justification leads to sanctification, we are promised that it will result in our glorification, that is, being made perfect, being restored to the original created and, and even greater than the original created uh, way before Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And so, our passage this morning highlights the amazing and undeserved benefits believers have through Jesus Christ. But Paul's purpose in reminding us of all these truths is to bring us to the critical question, how then shall we live? Let's read the first two verses again, Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peace with God. What does that mean? It's a significant statement in Paul's context, connecting his original audience back to a number of important prophetic messages in the Old Testament which promised peace as one of the gifts God would give to Israel in the end times. So, all, all through Scripture, many, many passages promise Israel in the end times they would have peace with God. Perhaps most notable is Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of, sorry, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Isaiah 54, 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Ezekiel 37, 26 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And Micah 5, 4 and 5a, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and He shall be their peace. These and many other prophetic passages from the Old Testament made it clear that God would give Israel peace in the end times, often referred to as a covenant of peace, 
which would come through a descendant of King David, whom Paul now identifies as our Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, the king for Israel's throne. Thus, the peace that the, the Roman believers had with God that Paul's now announcing was the very same peace that God had promised centuries before, a peace that has become reality through Jesus as He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And so, looking again at verses 1 and 2, the first words of chapter 5 summarize the message of justification. Uh, this, this message of justification uh, that we saw throughout the first four chapters, it, now to that is added that peace, access to grace, and the end-time hope of believers are all consequences of justification. All of these blessings which belong to Israel as God's people are now the portion of those who are in Christ regardless of their biological ancestry. Now, this, this peace with God that Paul announces here, uh, that he writes of, has both objective and subjective elements. Objectively, peace has been established with God, by God, through Christ, Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And through His atoning sacrifice, Colossians 1.20, Jesus has bought us reconciliation, making peace by the blood of His cross. So, this is something objective. It happens whether or not we experience it or think about it or, or know about it. But this peace is also subjective, something experienced and felt by believers in that we have a sense of being at peace with God as the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And so, the peace that Paul announces here is not merely a statement of truth, but a call to live at peace with God through the obedience that flows out of our faith in the Lord Jesus. And so, in 2 Peter 3.14, we are commanded to be diligent, to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And so, Paul doesn't begin a new sentence in verse 2. This is why we've included it here together in our English. It looks like a separate sentence, but in, in Greek, it is that we are called to live at peace with God by taking advantage of the access to God's grace that Christ has gained for us. As Hebrew 4.16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To understand what, what is meant here by obtaining access by faith into God's grace, we need to look through the, the narrative of the Old Testament, beginning with the transgression of Adam and Eve, how God drove them out of the Garden of Eden, Man was no longer to have immediate access to the presence of God. Now, even as we sang this morning, the Bible does teach us that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. But there is also a sense in which after God made a covenant with Abraham and renewed it with Moses at Mount Sinai, He promised to be in the midst of His people in the tabernacle and later the temple. Even then, it was only the high priest who could enter God's immediate presence, and even he could only enter once a year, 
on the Day of Atonement. And he had to go through a complex series of uh, rites of purification and cleansing before he even dared enter the Holy of Holies. And people could draw near to where God was, but no one was allowed direct access into His presence except the high priest in, under these very specific circumstances. R.C. Sproul wrote, a massive curtain of several folds and layers, which was far more difficult to destroy than a huge wooden door, kept people out of the Holy of Holies. This veil was a reminder to the people that God was inaccessible. The veil hung there until the hour of the death of Christ when it was torn in two as if a giant hand had reached down from heaven and ripped it like tissue paper, Matthew 27, 51. You ever wonder why we sing in our song, My Anchor Holds Within the Veil? That's a really (laughs) obscure (laughs) lyric. Because the veil's been torn, now we have access to God. My anchor holds within the veil, not not without. Why did God tear this down? Because the barrier between God and man was removed through Christ. The sin of man was now atoned for, and those who are justified are now able to come into the presence of God. They have access by the grace of justification, being declared righteous by God. And so Paul's emphasizing the fact that for us to be in the presence of God is not a matter of merit, rather it is God's mercy and grace which make it possible for me to enter into fellowship with Him. When I believe in Jesus, His righteousness is imputed to me. That is, I get the credit for His righteousness, and and then I have access to God through Him. It is a grace in which I stand. We, church, as believers, have been elevated into a position of privilege, a privilege to stand in the presence of God by grace. We have access to all of the grace and mercy we could ever need because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has removed the barrier between us and God, so we have no excuse now whatsoever for not living at peace with God, regardless of all the challenges we face in this world. And so we we have to daily take advantage of the access we have to God's grace as we are enabled by Him to live holy lives and enjoy His fellowship. And we take it for granted now. We take for granted that we can just come and actually have access to the very Spirit of God. That even when we don't know what to pray, the very Spirit of God prays perfect prayers on our behalf. That we have a mediator in heaven who has already paid the price so that we have this access and we have the ear of our Father. We've been adopted as sons and daughters, but all of us get the, t- the uh, title of firstborn son, the one who gets it all, the one who inherits. We have this amazing access to our good heavenly Father and then we take it for granted. Never are we more reminded of this access than when God shows us His love by answering our prayers. And this is why Jesus teaches His disciples that they are to pray in His name so their joy will be full. Because we won't have the joy that we have access to until we are asking our good Heavenly Father and realizing, wow, I really genuinely have access to the Creator of the universe who calls me His own. So Paul's reminding us here to be careful in how we relate to God, to take advantage of the access Jesus has given us to maintain a relationship of peace with God. Those 
who once scorned God's glory, Romans 1, 21 and 23. We who, who once scorned God's glory and fall short of it, Romans 3, 23, are now promised a future share in it. Declared righteous in God's sight and currently enjoying the end times covenant of peace with God and gift of grace. The full promises of salvation have not yet been realized. We still await future glorification, which will involve moral perfection and restoration to the glory lost when Adam sinned. But we rejoice now in the hope of the glory of God because He has promised that not only will He remain righteous, but He has made us righteous in this miraculous way by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, He promises us the ultimate completion of our justification, which is what the Bible calls glorification. And Christians, we, we often become very discouraged and disappointed by the fact that, that try as we might, we do not always behave as we should. There are times when I am disgusted with my own nature and my own sinfulness. Even if I'm able through the Holy Spirit to resist temptation, I can't believe I'm tempted in such ways. But for those who are being sanctified, there is a prevailing desire to be righteous, to be done with sin and evil, to be done with selfishness, to be done with pride, to be done with dishonesty, to be done with all those things that take away from the joy and the richness of human life. God promises those of us who are in Christ that someday we will all be glorified. Sin will be totally removed from the community of heaven. And so we rejoice now because the glory of God is going to prevail. We walk now in the celebration. I'm going to read it again later, but the, the Bible says that he who, is, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you. We have reason to rejoice now when we see that God has begun a work in us. We know that that which we long for, that perfection we long for, is already ours in Christ Jesus. And so as believers, we have great reason to rejoice. But you'll find it interesting, Paul does not actually use the word rejoice here but rather the word boast. And the form of the verb could be a statement, we boast, and or an exhortation, let us boast. Now, it's, it's likely the negative connotations we typically associate with boasting that has led most English translations to substitute the word rejoice here for boasting, even though there were several words for rejoicing in Greek that Paul did not choose to use here. He regularly criticizes boasting that is inappropriate, such as boasting in works of the law, the flesh, or anything else of ourselves, but using that exact same word to boast, he also encourages boasting in the Lord and in what He has done. And so it's the same exact word as both 1 Corinthians 1.31 and 2 Corinthians 10.17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so this same word here, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, is what is actually written. And so when we rejoice, and it's not a bad thing to say we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we rejoice, we are celebrating who God is and what God has done. 
When we rejoice, we speak of all these wonderful truths, and we do so to God and with other Christians. You know, we, we've hopefully been rejoicing this morning as we sing together of God's goodness to us. But when we boast, on the other hand, we are telling others what God has done for us, and the very language of boasting tends to imply that we are telling others who do not share the same boast, that is, to unbelievers. If, if you and I have the same privilege, I don't boast to you of my privilege. If, if we receive the same gift, I don't boast to you of my gift. And so boasting, while it often has negative connotations, is what we are to do when we boast in the Lord. Tom Schreiner, one of my favorite uh, theologians, calls boasting in the Lord the truest form of worship. When we enjoy or delight in something, we rejoice, and we should rejoice in the hope that we have, but it is when we extol the virtues of what we are enjoying so that others may also enjoy it, this is the sense of boasting here. So it's not boasting in a a mean sense where I'm saying, look what I have and you don't have, but it's look what I have and you don't have and you can have as well. You know, we see this happen all the time in our just everyday context. We don't always identify it as such, but you know, I always think of my brother-in-law, Cody, because he really likes the Oilers. And so, as much as I don't watch hockey or care about hockey at all, he would still tell me about how amazing certain players were and how good of a game they had last night and why the Oiler fans are the best and all these sorts of things. You know, you may enjoy a a certain show or, or a hockey team or a food or an activity, but it is when I boast about my team's ability or of my passion to others so that they will see how great it is, that is when I reveal that I am a natural-born worshiper. All of us boast in something. All of us tell our closest friends and family about the amazing thing that we were able to enjoy, uh, the beautiful sunset, the cake someone made. We, have, we boast. And now when someone boasts in themselves, we're like, okay, that's an arrogant person. But when someone boasts in something else, they're telling us about something good that we should also enjoy. So what is it that we worship? What is it that is on our tongue to boast about to others? What are we passionate about? I recently, not super recently, but not that long ago, found a a TV show I really like. It's clean. It's all natural. It's, a, it's kind of documentary-ish. And I tell people, man, you've got to watch this show. It is so good. It's the only show I love. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then I actually, I have a check in my spirit. Did I boast about my Lord today in the same way that I did a stupid TV show? Did I boast about my Lord today the way that Cody is so excited about the Oilers? We are told to boast in the hope of the glory of God. When Paul exhorts us by saying, we boast, which is, he's just saying that's the natural way of Christians. We boast. Or he's saying, let us boast in the hope of the glory of God. He, either way, he is urging us to verbally, explicitly, and freely tell unbelievers of the wonderful hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. We boast of our hope before a hopeless people. 
Though God found me a guilty, vile, and helpless sinner, He has forgiven me despite all the ways I have sinned and rebelled against Him. And this kind of boasting can quickly lead others to ask how God could do that and whether God might be willing to forgive them also. Such boasting is actually the opposite of being ashamed of the gospel, the opposite of failing to give God glory. We should be boasting in the hope of the glory of God. In Scripture, this hope means a sure and confident expectation. It doesn't mean the believers long to experience God's glory but are not sure about whether it will come to them. Believers are certain now that the glory Adam lost will be restored to them, and that is why we boast. It's a certain thing. And what an amazing contrast to the uh, critique or, or the bad news in Romans chapter 1 through 4. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, it talks about people who refuse to give God glory even though they have seen all the wonderful things He has made. And they fell short of His glory. All people have fallen short of His glory, Romans three twenty three. And these people who refuse to give God glory and fail, fell short of His glory are now able to boast in the certainty that they will share His glory. What was lost has been restored through faith in Christ. Moving on to Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Not only do we or should we boast in our hope of glory, but now Paul uses the exact same wording here as he did in verse 2, making it somewhat unclear as whether he said, we boast in our sufferings or let us boast in our sufferings. But either way, Paul is exhorting us to do something because boasting in suffering is not normal. We just don't normally do that. Jesus prepared His disciples for suffering, taught them to expect it as normative for His genuine followers, and to consider it a blessing. John 16, b in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Matthew 5, 10 to 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is why when arrested and flogged, beaten, punished by the Jewish courts, Jesus' first disciples, the apostles, rejoiced. Acts 5, 40-41, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The apostles 
rejoiced because their suffering and dishonor at the hands of their persecutors was positive evidence of their hope. They knew in that moment as they were beaten that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. As Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12-13, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you have not yet experienced this joyful confirmation of your eternal hope, and perhaps you have not yet begun to appropriately boast. And if verse 2, we do not boast in the hope of the glory of God, is that because we are not truly experiencing peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and not taking advantage of the access we have by faith into His grace? You know, are, are we not boasting because we're not actually excited? We're not even rejoicing? It's not something that is the overwhelming joy of our lives? Well, of course not then. We're going to talk about TV shows and hockey teams and food. But if we are experiencing peace with God and access into His presence by faith through the work of Jesus Christ, we are excited to boast about it. Is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification taking place in us as evidence of our justification by faith, or are we imposters? 2 Timothy 3.13. Going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See what he's saying here? Paul's not talking about like, here's the Christians in the church, and they are the ones that are this way, but then the, the evil people outside of the church are imposters. No, he's talking about people who are in the church those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but the imposters will go from bad to worse. They're deceiving and being deceived themselves. Are we deceived this morning? That is, if, if we fail to boast appropriately in the way Christians do, in the hope of, of our glory, in, in the hope of God's glory given to us, are we failing to experience Not only is suffering for Christ and His gospel a heartening evidence of our sure hope, but boasting in our suffering is a lot more than just tolerating tribulation and keeping a stiff upper lip. Some have thought that the meaning here is that we should boast while undergoing troubles. So it's like rejoice, not rejoice in your troubles, he couldn't mean that. So it must mean like just keep keep on rejoicing even though you have troubles. But that's not what Paul says here. What Paul actually says here is that believers are to boast in their troubles. Paul is saying that if God is in control, then the most bitter human experiences we are called upon to endure become not only tolerable, but we can actually glory in them because we know that God has promised to redeem every pain that we experience. Like the apostles as they were beaten and rejoicing 
well, what does this mean for us? This, this, this has great meaning for us. This has great application to our lives. This is a good thing that has happened. They don't enjoy being beaten, but they, they boast of it. They, they glory in it. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance. The hard realities of everyday life conspire to make believers more godly and Christ-like. And this builds hope in them that have been really been justified. It builds hope that they've been justified and that they are truly heading for future glory. You know, if, if I don't have suffering producing endurance, I, I can't know that I'm heading for glory. There may be no area of life where the Bible teaches a more countercultural concept. I have people come to me pretty regularly as we go through Romans and like, oh, how are people going to handle it when we get to Romans 8 and 9? And I'm like, well, if we appropriately understand Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, we aren't really going to struggle with Romans 8 and 9 that much. But if you don't understand that suffering can be God's plan and suffering is good and something we would rejoice in, boast in even, well, they, yeah, Romans 8 and 9 are going to really be a struggle. But there's nothing more countercultural than saying that suffering is good for Christians. The Bible teaches that we need suffering because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character brings us hope. It's not something that we enjoy, but it's something that allows us to grow in faith and character and hope. And beyond that, it allows us to know God in ways that are otherwise impossible. Our approach to suffering tends to be quite the opposite, right? Our approach to suffering is to run as fast as we can in the other direction. And so, like, when I'm discerning the will of God, I'm like, well, this way leads to suffering and this way leads to not suffering, so that's obviously the will of God because God wouldn't want bad things to happen to me. And then, we pray as hard as we can that God will take away any suffering that we do have. And if we ever have prayer requests for other people, it is almost always that God would take away the suffering that we have. And, and there's actually nothing wrong with praying that way. I'm not trying to say that's sin. Definitely, when I am in pain, I'm like, God, please take this away. Take this hurt. There's nothing wrong with that. But that seems to take up a lot of our prayer life, Right? A lot of our prayer life is centered around our goal, which is to move away from suffering. But as we rightly ask God to spare us from trials or deliver us from suffering that we have encountered, we need to do so as people who recognize that the trial may be God's best for us, because suffering is a primary tool that God uses to accomplish one of His primary purposes in our lives, conforming us to the image of His Son. And so to get really real, our children suffer. My, I have kids with some, some health concerns. Maybe many of you do as well, or family members. And maybe our predominant prayer for them is that God would remove this suffering from them. But this only serves to expose my ignorance, because while I should still pray for their healing, I so much more desire that God would conform them to the image of His Son. God knows exactly what He's doing. 
He is a good father and totally powerful and in control. Whatever you're going through, whatever your kids are going through, whatever your, your family's going through, your loved ones, God is using all of this for their good and His glory. And yeah, we should ask, God, I, I don't want to go through this, just, just, just as Jesus did. Just as Jesus prayed, and this is my paraphrase, I don't really want to die a horrible, painful, torturous death and be whipped and, and stripped naked in front of all these people. Please, I'd like not to have that happen. But nonetheless, not my will but yours be done. It's not just submission, but it's also the acknowledgement that God knows best and is working all things for our good, conforming us to the image of His Son. God, do whatever you need to do in my life so that I will walk in your way. Don't give me too much money or too much health or too much ease of life so that I might turn from you, but give me exactly what I need so that I will be conformed to the image of your Son. The message here is in lockstep with the overall message of Romans. Faith produces obedience. When we face trials and suffering, we are forced to choose whether we will continue to live in obedience to Jesus and for God's glory or not. And, and then we just have to keep making that choice day after day. And as we keep making that choice, we have the opportunity to learn endurance in the midst of suffering. We learn endurance by continuing to make that choice in the midst of suffering. And eventually, the process of endurance permanently changes our character. Because as someone goes through this over and over again and becomes in the habit of making the choice to obey God and give Him glory despite the circumstance, it can't help but to change them to be, be someone of, of a higher character, more moral character. And through suffering, God has strengthened our faith. And as we see our own heart changed and our growth in character, we can have confidence that we belong to God and have an eternal inheritance waiting for us. We, when we see that God has given us His Holy Spirit and ha the Holy Spirit has been at work in us, making us more like Jesus, Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So moral transformation in the believer constitutes evidence that we have really been changed by God, which is then our only assurance. It gives assurance to believers that our hope of future glory is not an illusion. When we know that God has accomplished the humanly impossible within us, when we know that my character has grown beyond what I would ever be capable of, we have the confidence to know, Philippians 1, 6, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This sure hope that we have means that we will not be put to shame or humiliated when Jesus returns. Now, if that is not a significant fear in your life, you, you need to rethink what this looks like. Our Lord gives us a commandment says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will return soon. And when He comes, will we have reason to be ashamed? 
Our hope in Christ assures us that when we stand before God, it will be with the confidence that He is our Father and we are His redeemed and adopted children. Now, this is yet another common Old Testament promise and hope for Israel, especially in Isaiah and in the Psalms. Psalm 119.116 says, uphold me, to, uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. And Psalm 25, 3 promises that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. And so this also connects us to the primary thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 to 17, uh, which we are memorizing as a church. Uh, will you recite it with me and say it without looking if you're able? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith over faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember, the book of Romans is written in part as an apologetic for the gospel. Now, imagine this, if you will. You're a Jewish believer who has lived according to the Old Testament law your entire life, and you've put your hope now in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and you're living in Rome, and now you've heard rumors uh, of this Paul guy who teaches a lawless gospel where you don't even have to obey God. And you know such a gospel would lead to shameful condemnation when Jesus returns. And so Paul's letter refutes the slander against him. This is not a gospel to be ashamed of. The, the, this hope will not put us to shame. The grace alone gospel is actually, in fact, the power of God for the fullness of salvation, justification in an instant, lifelong sanctification, and future eternal glory. And so, the, the true believer in Rome would have been excited to find out that the rumors were only malicious slander, and that the Apostle Paul was really preaching a gospel from faith for faith, and that the righteous shall live by faith. These five verses in Romans 5 lay out a, a long logical chain of God's activity. The parallel with Romans 8, 28 to 30 is crucial here. Romans 8, 28 to 30, if we know, I'll just wait, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. We, we quote that quite often, don't we? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. See how there's a logical chain here, an unbroken chain? Verse 29 of Romans 8 says that the ones He foreknew and then predestined, He has determined that they will be conformed to the image of His Son. There's an unbroken logical chain there. We have the same sort of thing happening here in Romans 5. Just as in Romans 8, we know that those whom He has foreknown, He has also predestined to be conformed. So, the ones He chose will be conformed to the image of His Son. 
And those whom he predestined, he will also call. And those he calls, he will also justify. And those he justifies, he will also glorify. There's an assurance that if these things are taking place, we know what is going to happen. We see the same thing here in Romans 5. And we're just going to read Romans 5, 1 to 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so we know if we have been justified by faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then, if, if these are true, then we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope we have. Not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Then endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. From beginning to end, this is the work of God. Now, commentators often remark that this logical chain only works if one responds appropriately, and that is certainly true. And Paul would not deny it. But but why did he leave out any condition here? He just says, this is what's going to happen. Well, he left it out because he assumes that God will overcome believers' tendency to wilt under pressure. We were hopeless if it is not God who does not also sanctify us. We are hopeless if it is not God who also glorifies us. We are hopeless, church, if God does not bring us the appropriate suffering at the right times. And hopeless if God does not cause us through His Spirit to endure as He gives us the means of grace as we pray and read our Bibles and come together as a church and worship Him. And we are hopeless if God does not produce character in us by the Holy Spirit through the things that we endure. So it is all the work of God. He gets all the glory. And man, it's good news for us as we trust Him and begin now. So, so as we see, there's this unbroken chain all the way. Coming back, we boast or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God right at the beginning. When we first see that God has done a work in us, when we know that we have been justified by faith, we begin to boast in that sure hope that we have of the glory of God restored to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us, far more good than we could ever deserve. You alone are good. None of us is in themselves righteous, not even one. I pray that you would not only instill upon us this good news that follows so quickly on the heels of the bad news of who we were without you, but God, that you would help us to revel in, rejoice in, extol you, boast in the hope that we have. May this joy be on our lips. When we struggle to be a boasting people, it reveals a scary situation on the inside. And God, I pray that you would rectify that as well. Heal us, O God. Where we have not experienced 
or remembered the joy of our salvation. I pray that you would show us that through this amazing Scripture and by your Spirit that we have so much to rejoice in, so much to boast in. And if we have such an amazing future set ahead of us, if our glory is assured because of the work of Jesus, God, help us now to also boast in our trials. Help us to give you thanks in all circumstances. Help us to rejoice as the apostles did when they were persecuted. And God, we desperately need you to heal us from our fear of being persecuted, our fear of being rejected by a world that you promised would hate all those who follow in your footsteps. And so, Lord, I pray that you would begin to shield us by your word and by your spirit. Prepare us to follow in your footsteps. Prepare us for suffering. Prepare us for persecution. Lord, that when we get some of the, the worst diagnoses and, and some of the worst news, that even as we are in grief and, and crushed by the circumstance that we would not be destroyed, but we would have the, the fortitude of knowing that the end is already secured, that there's nothing to worry about, that this life is short, it's heaven, as Ecclesiastes taught us, but that we have so much to look forward to. Do this in our hearts, we pray, for our good and for your glory most of all. We ask this for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen.